Before we begin this evening, uh, we'll pray briefly. Uh, Mr. Herrera just asked if we could pray for his wife, Sue. She has back surgery tomorrow, so we'll pray for her. Um, I need to warn you as well that I've got new glasses today, and um, they're making my headache, and I can't see anything below about here, so I can't see my notes, and I can't see my watch. I knew you'd be pleased. Um, So you might need to throw something at some point. Um, Or we could just carry on. Um, uh, Let's pray. We'll pray for Sue and pray for our time together and then uh, we'll get started. Merciful God and Father, we're thankful to you for every good gift that comes from your hand. We pray for Mrs. Herrera that you'd rest her well tonight, uh, rest her surgeons well tonight. And we pray that the surgery that she has scheduled for tomorrow would go really smoothly, really well. Uh, that she'd recover from it quickly and be restored to us very soon. And we pray this evening that you'd open our eyes that we may see beautiful and wonderful things in your Torah, in your instruction, in your law. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to read this psalm, and then I'll say a few words, and then a few more words, and then we'll conclude and uh, spend some time singing. Psalm 19. As before I've uh, you've, you've got here a, a translation of mine, which is uh, not really radically different to what will be in your Bibles, but it, it does bring out a few of the details that I want to point to in a way that some translations do not. Psalm 19. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens are recounting the glory of God, and the work of his hands the firmament is declaring. Day to day it pours forth speech, and night to night it tells knowledge. There is no speech, and there are no words, without its voice being heard. In all the earth their measuring line goes out, and to the end of the world their speech. For the sun he has pitched a tent in them, and it is like a bridegroom coming forth from his chamber. It rejoices like a mighty man to run a course. From the end of the heavens is its place of rising, and its circuit to their ends, and nothing is hidden from its heat. The Torah of the Lord is complete, causing repentance of the soul. The testimony of the Lord is established, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, standing to perpetuity. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous together. More desirable than gold, and much pure gold, and sweeter than honey, and flowing honey from the honeycomb. Moreover, your servant is admonished by them. In keeping them is a great reward. Errors, who can discern? From concealed things declare me innocent. Moreover, from presumptuous things hold back your servant. May they not rule over me. Then I shall be complete and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the melody of my heart be pleasing before your face, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I'd like to talk tonight about knowing God in the most basic sense to start with, thinking from the perspective of somebody who does not know him. Think, if you can, from the perspective of the atheist. Historically, Atheism is a little bit of a minority report religion. If you assembled all the people who'd ever lived and grouped them by religious conviction and then put all the religious nuns in one corner, it would be quite a small corner. 
Though in our day it's a slightly larger corner than historically has been the case. We're living in a period of time when atheism, that is the denial of the existence of God, is more widespread than it has been in many generations. But I noticed something interesting. There are circumstances in which even people who previously or in other circumstances had disavowed belief in God or even spoken strongly against his existence will suddenly, or maybe not suddenly, but gradually come to at least accept the possibility of contemplating whether he's really there. One actually struck me this morning. I was listening to a podcast. I, I, I subscribe to Sam Harris's podcast. Some of you know Sam Harris or know of him. Uh, he's famous as one of the four horsemen of the new atheism, along with Richard Dawkins and Dan Dennett and um, the late Christopher Hitchens. He's famous as an atheist. But he's having a conversation in this podcast from a few years ago with David Chalmers, who's a philosopher of the mind. And in this conversation, David Chalmers says, words to the effect at one point, you know, this particular theory of the mind, I can't remember the exact phrase he used, but something along the lines of, it would almost kind of make sense if there's some kind of God. And what's fascinating is in that context, on his own turf, talking with somebody by whom he doesn't feel threatened or attacked, perhaps able to uh, listen and reflect a little bit more, um, the great atheist Sam Harris is sort of reflective and thinking about what uh, David Chalmers has said. David Chalmers isn't a believer himself. But both of them, there they are, just talking about stuff that they don't really understand about the mind, which is interesting, and feeling themselves led towards this possibility. The other situation, of course, in which people start to contemplate the existence of God is when they get older. I've known people who, as they've got older, have moved... The dial has moved from atheism through agnosticism towards something like a vague kind of religious awareness, at least. And it's tempting to put that down to last-ditch desperation or covering your bases, a sort of form of Pascal's wager, you know. Nobody knows whether there's a God, but, you know, the safest bet is that there is, because if you're wrong, doesn't matter. If you're right, good job. <laughs> um, but I think you could put it down to something else as well. We normally attribute wisdom to old age, uh, reflectiveness to old age. Uh, in their best moments, and perhaps we hope this for ourselves, we hope that the time will come where we look back and reflect and are able to contemplate our mistakes and maybe rethink some quite significant errors that we may have made. And I've, I've known people who I think have done that. I know some people who I think still are. You might pray for them. I won't tell you who they are. I don't want to mention them publicly. But here's the problem, you see. Where's Sam Harris looking? Where are people looking who find themselves sort of drawn to the idea of the possibility of maybe there's a God in their advancing years? Well, they might be looking to dimly remembered Sunday school lessons from 75 years ago. But more often than not, what people are actually doing is dwelling on ideas that emerge from within. They're dwelling on what theologians call uh, general revelation. 
things that God has revealed about himself in the things that have been made. And it's that that I want to begin by talking about as we come to this psalm, because this psalm is famous for being the psalm that talks about general revelation. If you know Psalm 19, uh, you'll know that it's often raised in these uh, discussions if you've ever been encountered them. Because look, verse 1, the heavens are recounting the glory of God, and the work of his hands, the firmament is declaring, the skies above, all the things that have been made are speaking about God. And so what sometimes people will say is that this psalm endorses the idea that you can find God by looking at the beauty of the mountains or the sunsets. Or this psalm endorses the idea you can find God by looking deep within. And I want to tell you, it doesn't endorse that idea. It does endorse the idea that God speaks there. But scripture teaches, and this psalm teaches as well, that we're not hearing, we don't listen there. What we need is the portion of, let me reframe that, what we need is the revelation that God gives which is expounded in the second portion of this psalm, from verse 7 onwards. Let's look at verse 7, top of the second column. The Torah of the Lord, the law of the Lord, the teaching of the Lord, is complete. So what this psalm does is it shifts from natural revelation to what theologians sometimes call special revelation. That is, God as he's revealed himself in history, specifically through the mouths of prophets, climactically in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and now by the spirit-inspired word of God, the Bible. So here's how it works. Customarily, Christian theologians say, well, if they're doing it right, they, well, if they're doing it wrong, they say, this psalm endorses natural revelation as a means to know God. If they're doing it right, they say, this psalm explains that natural revelation reveals God, but that we don't see him. What we need is special revelation, the second portion of the psalm. And they all forget the third portion of the psalm, which I think is a challenge to us. In fact, that's really what it is. This psalm says it's not enough just to try and look for God in nature. It's not enough even to find teaching about him in the scriptures. What is required if we are to know God is to respond with faithfulness to what he's revealed about himself in the scriptures. And that's the third portion of this psalm, which is at the end. So I want this to be both, it'll be hopefully a little educational trip down the theological bypaths into what's right and what's wrong with natural law and special revelation and general revelation and so on. But towards the end, I have a challenge for us in the form of the last portion, which really reflects on how the faithful believer should respond to what God has revealed. It's not enough just to read the Bible. Certainly not enough just to gaze at the stars. What we need is to respond in faithfulness to the living God with repentance and an obedient, humble life. So let me just take you through this and make some comments about these different theological traditions on the way. You see, first, the structure overall, it's like three parts, six, six, seven. Okay, come on. If it mentions the heavens and the firmament in the first verse, and then there are six of anything, it is a, an echo of Genesis chapter one, correct? 
Just as in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. So this psalm is structured to echo, in some ways, the creation narrative. It's interesting, therefore, and this reinforces where we're going to at the end, that the section about natural revelation, general revelation, only has six bits in it. Six, not seven. And the section about Torah, the section about the Word of God, only has six, not seven, sections. Can you see that? That The grey numbers on the outside margins. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Where do we have to go to find the completeness, the rest, the seven? We have to go to the end of the third section. That's where we're coming to. But it's not the case that we have to go there because, you know, general revelation is lacking in some way. That's not the case. Just consider what these first six verses say about what God has revealed in the created order. The heavens are recounting. The, the word there is, is used elsewhere in Scripture to describe the process of um, either reading or writing, depending on the form of the verb. It's like that the heavens are recounting in the way that one would if one had a scroll and one was recounting, as a scribe would, a trained professional recounting the deeds of the Lord. The heavens are like that. They're this scroll that's unrolled, revealing the deeds of God. And verse 2, it pours forth speech, and night to night it tells knowledge. There's no speech, and there are no words without its voice being heard. Its, its voice is heard everywhere there is speech, everywhere there are people. And indeed, in all the earth, their measuring line goes out, and to the end of the world, their speech. The, their measuring line is the heavens... The singular, it pours forth speech, in verse 2, is the work of God's hands. So verses 1 to 4 are kind of all together. What what does God's handiwork say? What what do the heavens declare? And it's a lot. In fact, verse 4 is quoted in Romans 10 to speak of the work of Christ. Paul is explaining that Christ has been preached everywhere. And he quotes Psalm 19, verse 4, with a tweak. And it's as though to say... God the Son, who became incarnate in Jesus Christ, really is revealed in the created order. Verses 5 and 6 of this wonderful uh, cluster of metaphors. The heavens are likened to a tent in, that God has pitched uh, for the sun. And of course the heavens are exactly like a tent, which is why the tabernacle, which is a tent, is exactly like the heavens. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to wait for Pastor Neil to produce his audio version of Through New Eyes by James Jordan. Or you can just go and buy the book, available for $39 on Amazon by our very own James Jordan. And then this is image of it's like a bridegroom coming forth from his, his chamber. It rejoices like a mighty man to run a course. What's the point of this imagery? It's, it's just a point to one thing that God has made. That bright white star around which the earth orbits is like the majesty of a wealthy bridegroom emerging for his wedding day. In the ancient world, weddings were all about the groom, nothing to do with the bride, really. You know. the, the virgins are waiting for the bridegroom to arrive, not the bride. The bride isn't paying for this thing. The guy's paying for it, so if he's the one everybody makes a fuss about. And rejoices like a hero, a gibor, like Boaz, or like David's mighty men. 
So the heavens really do declare the wonder and the glory of God, but there's a hint here of why it's not enough. The, the word at the end, in verse 6, nothing is hidden from its heat. The word there translated heat elsewhere refers to the wrath of God, God's anger. Nothing is hidden from the heat of the anger of God. Because scripture declares, for example in Romans chapter 1, that what we've done is sinfully blinded our eyes to this glorious natural revelation of God. What, what human sin is, is turning away from God as he's revealed himself in the created order and turning instead to created things, making idols out of them. That's, that's the logic of Romans chapter 1. And so what you see as you make the transition from that to the second part of this psalm, it's, it's a really sharp sort of disjunction. You think it's all about the glory of the created order and how God has revealed himself in it. And the psalmist suddenly goes, the law of the Lord is perfect, complete, whole. This is, you're expecting the seventh little subsection in this first portion. Perhaps to tell you that you could find rest in God as he's revealed in creation. And it's no, you only get six and you need to restart with Torah. You've heard me say before the word law is a, a very common but somewhat misleading way of translating the Hebrew word Torah because um, it conjures up images of legalism and bossing, bossing people around. That's not what the Lord does at all. Uh, the word comes from the verb to instruct. The instruction of the Lord is complete causing repentance of the soul. And just notice that there's a very, very marked change in structure here. I've, I've even used my Word document skills and tabs and font colours to highlight. Each of these first four sentences in the second part of this psalm have the same structure. The Torah, or something like it, of the Lord is something, adjective. Then a participle in Hebrew, causing repentance of something, the soul, or making wise the simple. You see how the structure works. Red, blue, green, purple, orange. It does that four times. There's a break with a fifth one we'll come to in a second. And it's designed to emphasize, by contrast with the inadequacy of the created order because of our sin, the completeness and perfection and wonder of God speaking. And this is the, this is the challenge that you always find if you're talking to not that you'd ever talk to Sam Harris probably, but if you're talking to somebody who's philosophically minded, at a certain point you have to talk about God, Jesus, and the Bible. You, you, can't, you can't work your way there via philosophy. Philosophy can paint the, the canvas on which you've got the empty hole in the middle, but what it can't do is fill the hole in. And we've all seen in recent years public intellectuals who've meandered closer to the edge of that hole and perhaps into it, but they still haven't really found Jesus Christ, or maybe, who knows. Just look at some of the um, echoes in these first few parts of um, the Torah section on the right-hand side. Um, the teaching of the Lord is complete. Um, I know in your Bibles it says restoring the soul. It, 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 the Torah of the Lord does do that. But the verb here is the normal Hebrew verb to repent. But it's in the causative form of the verb. Bringing about repentance. I think it's a fascinating insight. The, the way in which people are led 
to repent is precisely by the call to repent being laid upon them by the Spirit of God. It's, it's the, the demand that God lays down by which God creates the desire and the change that he requires. Yeah, there's, not, there's not something extrinsic from the word that's needed. And you, you sometimes find this confusion among our charismatic friends. It's like, well, you need the word, but yeah, but you need the spirit as well. I'm like, well, okay, yes, but how does the spirit speak? The Spirit speaks in and through the Word. It's the Word that the Spirit inspired and now animates by which the Spirit is at work in the sinner and, frankly, the redeemed sinner to bring about repentance. We should have confidence in the Word of God to do what it requires of people in people because the Torah of the Lord brings about repentance of the it's nefesh. It, the Hebrew word means neck or throat. It comes to mean life. Sometimes it's translated soul. It means the whole person. God's Torah transforms people. The testimony of the Lord is established, making wise the simple. That's obviously proverbial language, wise and simple. And you start in Proverbs chapter 1 and you get to Proverbs chapter 31 by navigating your way through the intervening 31 chapters, and you're made wise by the Lord's instruction. The precepts of the Lord are right, and it's interesting here, an emotional response, giving joy to the heart. Do you know that joy? Do you, do you ever sit down and read the Bible, not because you've got to catch up with the Christchurch Moscow Bible reading schedule, but because you like it? I think many Christians would, if only they thought that was kind of allowed. You know, you're allowed to read this book for fun. There's some quite fun bits in it. The book of Jonah is a comedy, as well as being quite serious, like all the best comedy. Um, I encourage you to read it for the joy that that it brings. The commandment of the Lord is pure. You might meditate for just a moment on the circumstances in which you might need purity in particular and why the commandment of the Lord is pure. Now, notice I've underlined this, um, the phrase at the start of verse 9 in red. You notice the difference. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring to perpetuity or standing to perpetuity. What's happened in the previous four mini subsections is you've got Torah and testimony and precepts and commandment is all about what God says, yes, what God instructs us in. And now you've suddenly got the fear of the Lord. It's like, that doesn't fit. Well, when you notice something that doesn't fit, notice it doesn't fit. What's happening? You now have something which is about the, the response that the word of the Lord is supposed to create in us. And it's actually moving us towards the third section. It's a hint that this section isn't enough either. This is only six incomplete Torah because what's needed is a response that begins with fear what's the beginning of wisdom again the fear of the Lord and we all kind of dress this up about you know fear doesn't really mean fear fear means you know respecting God no it's it's the verb to be afraid it's what it means we ought to be a little bit frightened 
of the living God. Not frightened that he's going to smash us because he's so wicked, but frightened because he's just so big. He's not, what's it? He's not a tame lion. There we are. Preach it with me. You know that bit. Now that takes in a transition to the third section. Uh, notice you've got Lord, 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 six times Lord in the second section, one times God in the first section. You go from God, the generic name for a deity, to Lord, the covenant name for God, but even that isn't complete until you've got to the end of the third section where you get the seventh Lord. Come to that just in a moment. And just notice this. This final section, it's all about how a faithful reader of Torah will appropriate it for themselves. What will you say to yourself when you rise in the morning and open the word of God for those 18 minutes with a cup of coffee before you get in the car and drive to work or while you're trying to juggle babies and oatmeal and math textbooks? What will you say to yourself? You might say to yourself, I wish I had 15 minutes to sit down in peace. Husbands, Give her 15 minutes. But this is the response of a faithful believer in the Lord who says of the the law of God, more desirable than gold and much pure gold, sweeter than honey, flowing honey from the honeycomb. This is the honey where the, the, the hive is so overflowing with honey that it's dripping out before you get there. There's a special word for that in Hebrew because honey was the sweetest thing they knew. They didn't have candy, didn't have Hershey's, didn't even have Cadbury's. <gasps> Gasp. They had honey. That was the sweetest thing on earth for a Hebrew. Well, it's not the sweetest thing on earth for a Hebrew. Because the Torah of the Lord, it's like, oh man, this is... When dad comes home and he's got like a... I don't know what you'd carry it around in. You know, a little little box or a little pot with honey in it that he's got on the way back from the fields because he happened to get stung by about 50 bees and he's right, I'm having you, come on. It's like the kids are really excited because dad's brought some honey home. The faithful Israelite is more excited than that about the prospect of getting this. So I sit down for 10 minutes with my cup of coffee in the morning and open the word of God and hear him speak. Moreover, your servant or your slave is admonished by them. In keeping them, there is great reward. One commentator says there's a stick and a carrot in the Bible. Yeah, that probably do, won't it? Errors... Who can discern? You see, this is the the psalmist is starting to realize that the word of God is pointing to so many things within him that are not as they ought to be, that there's all sorts of things there probably that he's not noticed. Errors, he cries out. I can't, what am I supposed to do about them? Lord, please declare me innocent from all the things I haven't noticed and haven't yet repented of. Moreover, from presumptuous things, hold back your servant. May they not rule over me, because only Jesus should rule over me. Then I shall be, and this is just fascinating, this moment. It's another moment of literary and theological beauty and clarity. Then I shall be complete. Like what? What's the other thing that's complete in this psalm? Go on, James, you've seen it. In verse 7. What else is complete in this psalm? The Torah. Yeah, if I can get to the end of verse 13, then it's as though I'll have Torah within me, like the kid who swallowed up all the honey that his dad has brought home because he's so excited. Then, and only then, 
you get to the seventh. At last, we get to the rest. There are some of you who have, for weeks or months, in some cases, years, you have been wrestling with something or somebody. For some of you, it's your dad. Uh, For some of you, it might be a spouse. It might be a brother or a sister. Maybe it's another relative or a friend you've been wrestling with in the sense of frustrated with. Not finding peace with them. Not finding rest with them. You're still stuck somewhere between sections one to six. You've not yet got to the end of this portion. You've not yet so taken on board Torah that you are complete like Torah is. And only when you do that can you then say, verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the melody of my heart be pleasing before your face, Lord, seventh time, my rock, my redeemer. Now notice, where we started was with the problem of knowing God. Yes? And we cast it, like so many do, as a problem of the intellect. Where can I find out about him? And you discover first the inadequacy of general revelation. Sorry, Sam Harris, you're going to need to open a Bible at some point. Then you discover the inadequacy of just knowing about God. The Torah is complete, but you just knowing all this stuff is not what's required. What's required for you to know God is to be conformed to him ethically. See, notice, it's not let the thoughts of my head be accurate. But it's let the words of my mouth, and literally it's the melody, higayon, it's the name for a tune that a, a lute produces. And the melody of my heart be pleasing so you, you started wanting to find out about God and you end up with, is it, um, is it Augustine or Anselm or both of them, saying, I believe in order that I may understand. Believe in the strong sense of have faith and am faithful. It's faithfulness. It's a faithful and obedient response of repentance which creates the understanding the experience of God that you crave. And it's only there that you will find that rest that you need. And in some of those darker moments, you know that you really want. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, may the words of our mouths and the melody of our hearts be pleasing before your face. May we not become biblical theological problem solvers, but disciples, faithful, loving your Torah, taking it into us and being conformed to it and so becoming complete like it is, so that our words and thoughts and actions are pleasing before your face, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.